were shocked at the responses we got from the reviewers. Absolutely. And a lot of those were some things we could not argue with, which was just like, this can't be. We've never seen this and this is why this can't be. Welcome to Freely Filtered. The irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NefJC journal clubs. NefJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have a partial filtrate. Sophia? Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm from the University of Colorado and the Denver VA, and my Twitter handle is Sophia underscore kidney. Josh? Hi, Josh Waitzman here. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston, and I tweet at jwaits. Nine. My name is Nain Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride. And when Joel was handing out roles for this uh, episode, I got snide remarks. So that's why I'm here. Nice. (laughs) Jenny. I'm Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University. And I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. It is not every day that NefJC hosts a discussion on an article that will literally change the textbooks. Minimal change disease has never been an antibody-mediated disease. Not that we knew how it happened, but it was definitely not listed as one of the antibody-mediated glomerulonephritis. But now we have a compelling chain of evidence breaking this orthodoxy, and we are delighted to have the senior author a study that will be referenced in textbooks for decades to come. Astrid, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm delighted to be here. My name is Astrid Wines. I am a renal pathologist and scientist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Happy to be here to chime in whenever I can. And my Twitter handle is at Astrid Wines. Outstanding, outstanding. Josh, why don't you kind of uh, frame up the study for us? Sure. So I think we all remember the first patient we took care of who had minimal change disease. It's kind of like the perfect version of nephrotic syndrome. It comes on suddenly. There's no acute on chronic on very chronic hedging. It leads to all that stuff you learned about with nephrotic syndrome in medical school with the massive proteinuria and edema and hypoalbuminemia. The kidney biopsy findings are the only findings I feel like my medical students and residents remember with normal light microscopy, negative immunofluorescence, and podocyte effacement on EM. There are no humps to remember anywhere, which is really nice. But the only thing I feel like has kept it from being perfect in our understanding is we didn't really know where it came from. We had this idea of a circulating permeability factor for decades, and we knew that some people with minimal change disease responded to rituximab, but whether that meant it was antibody mediated or just rituximab is magical was not totally clear. And we had animal models that showed us that animals that received anti-nephrine antibodies got a minimal change-like disease. But I think it was really looking at pathology sections that got Dr. Wines and, and the rest of this team excited about pursuing this question. And I feel like Part of that is because I didn't realize that my pathologist had lied to me the entire time, that 
negative immunofluorescence doesn't really mean negative immunofluorescence. So maybe Astrid, we could start there. Can you tell us like, what's the deal with this immunofluorescence and how is it really not as negative as we were taught it was? Yeah, that's one of these things that pathologists are really good at, ignoring what we can't explain. And so over many, many years in our department, Dr. Helmut Renke, who's my mentor and senior colleague and is probably the most famous and best a nephropathologist in the world, in my eyes he is at least, um, has noted this this kind of fine dusting IgG staining and has noted that it was really always there in minimal change disease and it was never really seen in any other condition uh, except sometimes also in early FSGS. And so he took note of it and he actually recorded it every time in the report that he saw this and he taught all of his trainees about it including me. I trained with him. And I always was curious. And he always had this in every talk he gave to medical students. He had this little blurb that said that he believes it is that this is an antibody mediated process because he sees IgG staining in these biopsies. Uh, He mentioned it even at nephrology board review courses, you know, but it just never got the attention it should have received. And um, then finally, I set out to study that and try to figure out what this is and what this is all about. Astrid, can I just confirm that this dusting of IgG, it's absolutely not seen in normal glomerular biopsies, correct? That is absolutely correct, yes. So it's only seen in minimal change disease, and it's been sort of looked over because no one could explain it this whole time. It is only seen in minimal change disease and in some cases of uh, primary FSGS. So this was a bombshell for me, right? I would have gone to battle saying that IF is negative and minimal change disease. So I'm going to ask a dumb question, which is going to make you realize I know nothing about pathology. How do you know these aren't, I mean, these are from patients who are nephrotic. Hmm? How do you know these aren't just protein reabsorption droplets? So protein reabsorption uh, droplets have a very characteristic shape, and they also, they're much bigger usually, and they also have albumin in them. So we always do an albumin stain with all of our IF panels. And these fine dusting findings that we see in minimal change disease do not stain for albumin at all. It's also not a nonspecific finding uh, of the antibody because we tested different IgG antibodies and all of them show the same pattern. And we also see it with different IgG subclass antibodies, one, two, three, and four. Uh, We also see it with the kappa and lambda light chain staining because obviously it's a full immunoglobulin, so you also have kappa and lambda light chain staining in the same pattern. So it's not a nonspecific finding for sure, and it was just ignored and and dismissed because people didn't know what to do with it. And so that chain of logic that you just went through, is that all your work, or had that been previously documented stuff before you started? No, we we did all that. Uh, together with Joel that Henderson. Was your, that was at the, part of your journey at to get yes, here. Yes, we, we tried to confirm, and we had to also convince our reviewers that this is not nonspecific. That was a major issue they had in the beginning when we tried to get this paper published, that they were not believing this because it was never described, and they couldn't believe that something that you know is so obvious would have been missed for so long. And it turns out it wasn't missed. People saw it. It just was dismissed. Not missed, dismissed. That's outstanding. I feel like IF is kind of the dark art of patholo- like nephropathology for us. Like I feel like I can look at a light microscopy and understand where that 
picture com- comes from and what happened to that sample. And like with EM, I can like look at it and identify individual structures. But with IF, I feel like I'm relying on some dilution of some antibody that someone has titrated in a room that I never get to see. Um, and I feel like it would have been really easy if I were a nephropathologist to say like, oh, I must just have my dilution wrong. I just got to dilute this down and this false background staining will go away. Is that really like what's been going on in nephropathology labs for the past several decades when people have done this and seen this this dusting? Is it just like it is in my head, I got to dilute more? Yeah, I don't know about dilution, but I think uh, what happens often is that the quality of the frozen sections aren't optimal. And what often happens is that the capillary walls collapse on top of each other. And so then in these cases, it's really tough to see this kind of fine dusting pattern, especially when it's still very close to the slit diaphragm, as we have seen in some cases. You wouldn't be able to distinguish that from the background staining of the glomerular basement membranes that you always see to some degree because IgG is very sticky. And so um, I think that was what, what was going on more so, that people either didn't see it because their, you know, their technique wasn't optimal, or they had the antibodies diluted not enough, or they didn't look actually at the IF themselves, which actually happens quite a bit that technicians take the images, and you just look at the images. And on the images, it's much harder to see than with your own eyes. I can imagine too, it would be hard or at least easy to make certain assumptions because it's not like this is across the board. It's in a subset population of minimal change disease patients. I think it was about 30% that it was circulating, at least in the Neptune group. So it's really not that high. I mean, it's a reasonable amount, but it's not 100%. It's actually not true. So uh, the IgG dusting finding we see in, I would say, close to 100% of cases. Um, Unless the patients have already been treated, or already in spontaneous recovery, which happens. We don't see it in these patients. And then usually they don't have to fuse foot process effacement anymore. But we do see it in close to 100% in, in our hands. I wouldn't go that high. I think I've heard numbers from colleagues that were 70%, 80%, 90%, but it's a lot more than 30%. And I think the 30% in the paper about the Neptune cohort is, um, and that's not the dusting, that is the presence of the circulating antibodies, right? And that, that is because these patients, this particular cohort is confounded by a lot of things. And I think there are some patients that have already been treated, 97% actually of the patients we looked at. Anyway, so it's in, it's in a lot more cases that we than, than 30%, absolutely, more close to 80, 90% of cases. You said you, are, you also see this fine dusting in some cases of FSGS. Mm-hmm. So do I need to unlearn everything? Does that mean FSGS and minimal change are one disease spectrum? And how, what, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, yes, I, I believe so. I do think that, you know, if you, if you think about it pathogenetically or in terms of pathogenesis, when you think about these processes, you cannot start out with scarring, right? Uh, FSGS is essentially a type of scar. It's a sclerosis. And that has to have, that has to start somewhere before. So you have to have protocyte injury and you have to have a minimal change disease-like picture even in FSGS. When you see the tip lesion, when you see the FSGS, the sclerotic lesion, you're already down the road much further. So I believe that the initial injury in these patients is the same. Some patients develop uh, FSGS and some don't. 
for whatever reason, if it's pre-existing factors, if it's uh, genetic factors, if it's environmental podocyte stress, or if it's sustained injury, I think we need to figure these things out. But to me, these are all the same diseases. This is all the same. So it sounds like you might actually put your money down on saying that close to 100% of these patients probably have a circulating factor if you see those fine granular IgG deposits. I would put my money down that they all have an antibody. I don't know for sure that they are all antinephrine antibodies. Let's jump into methods. For methods, uh, this was an observational cohort study testing the hypothesis that autoantibodies against nephrine may underline non-congenital MCD by disrupting the integrity of the slit diaphragm complex. And so to do this, serum samples of adult and pediatric patients were evaluated for circulating nephrine autoantibodies. And these serum samples came from multiple sources, including Neptune. Uh, some healthy controls came what's from the boss. Ne- do we know what, what's Neptune? Neptune, well, it is a cohort of FSGS and uh, MCD patients called the Nephrotic Syndrome Study Network. I think originally from University of Michigan, if I, if I remember correctly. And so they are a prospective cohort and have taken biopsies and multiple serum samples throughout the course of a patient's disease. And they have very specific definitions for what they define uh, as active disease and remission and relapse. What is important to know about this cohort is that patients have defined study visits at particular weeks. So it's not like they're always there when they're most nephrotic or when they're in full remission. They just come to these study visits, and that's when their blood samples are taken. Okay, so so part of the problem is sometimes you'll have patients that are treated, sometimes they'll be in remission, sometimes they'll maybe be in full-blown disease, but they yeah. may be in but the middle of But they're being followed for years, yes. And then there are also serum samples from you know Boston Area Biobank for healthy controls, additional serum samples from membranous patients that are PLA2R positive. And then, um, as I understand, additional serum samples and corresponding kidney biopsy samples uh, collected from multiple academic centers in the Boston area and from Sus Weikar's uh, biobank. And um, so Astrid, uh, I also was reading through that the Neptune patients had undergone uh, whole genome sequencing with a focus on certain uh, genes that have been identified in nephrotic syndrome, and you know, they were analyzed for likely or pathologic variants in those genes. Uh, was the goal basically to rule out? You wanted to focus on the patients that did not have pathologic variants. That's that's exactly right. We wanted to have a clean as possible study population here. So we really wanted to avoid all confounders, which is why we only have patients in there in this from Neptune that had a renal biopsy and had confirmed minimal change disease. We had our study criteria were that they had to be uh, at least three grams per gram creatinine of had to have proteinuria of that amount. We really wanted to exclude that there is a genetic cause for their uh, nephrotic syndrome. As far as we know, obviously there may be other variants that are unknown, but the ones that are known are all included. Sure. So you mentioned the definition of active disease. Um, complete remission was considered a UPCR less than 0.3 grams per gram partial remission, more than 50% reduction in proteinuria, a relapse would be a UPCR that's increased to over three gram per gram after a complete remission. 
and then steroid dependent was steroid sensitive nephrotic syndrome with two or more relapses during tapering or within 14 days of stopping steroids. And these are just the, those all sound like pretty conventional definitions. Am I right? You guys weren't going off road there. You're just kind of. No, we just wanted to make sure we are, you know, consistent with our samples. Standardized Mm -hmm. and everything. We understand measuring nephrine autoantibodies is not really something that you can order up on EPIC or CPRS. It's something uh, that's not done on routine testing. So it required making custom ELISA plates to detect the presence of autoantibodies and to quantify the titers. Um, and then from what, what I understand, the results were also validated through an orthogonal method using immunoprecipitation of nephrine protein extracted from healthy human glomerular extracts. Ah, There was a lot of words there. There, Many of them were many syllables long. I don't (laughs) at all understand that. I got lost at the word orthogonal. So (laughs) we walked through. So the first thing, we're just going to use ELISA to look for these antibodies. Is that right? And we're going to be testing their serum for the antibodies? Yes. That's That's step one. You know, what was the um, the goal of using the immunoprecipitation? Well, so, so initially what we did is we just basically took human glomerular extract from a healthy donor kidney. We ran it on a Western blot, and then we took serum and incubated the Western blot with the serum. We wanted to see if there's a bind, there's a, there's binding of the anti-nephrine antibodies to the I'm, nephrine I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little slow. Can I just, what? So that means you've got a healthy glomerulus and you mm-hmm. take serum from a patient who's got nephrotic syndrome. That's right. And you mix them together and presumably that patient with nephrotic syndrome has got these anti-nephrine antibodies and they should bind to the nephrine and this healthy kidney. That's what, that's what you're doing there. Yeah, so a conventional Western blood would be much easier to do and works for some of the patients as well. But the problem is that these antibodies are probably there at very low levels. And so what we ended up getting when we incubated that for a long enough time to see the nephrine band, we got a lot of other nonspecific staining. And so we, we, we decided that we would go with an IP method. So basically precipitate nephrine out from the patient's serum. So we basically incubated the patient's serum with human glomerular extract from a healthy kidney. And then we took that and we ran it over protein G beads a column with protein G beads, and protein G binds immunoglobulins. So all the immunoglobulins would bind to those beads, and then you elute that out, and then you run that eluate on a Western blot, and then incubate with the anti-nephrine antibody to see if you can get a band. So it's basically a concentration of the antibody using this IP methodology. And with the human glomerular extract, obviously, because nephrine, there are also all other proteins in there that are in the glomerulus, it's not specific for nephrine because it could be that the nephrine is bound to another protein, and that's why you're pulling the nephrine down. So what we then did is we made our own recombinant nephrine extracellular domain, and we used just that and did the same thing with that, and that showed the same band. So that basically confirmed that it's directly binding to nephrine and not to another binding partner of nephrine. And then the ELISA is based also on this recombinant nephrine extracellular domain protein that we coat the plates with and then essentially throw the serum on in a diluted form. And then we can use that ELISA with a standard curve to actually kind of semi-quantitate the levels of antibodies in the serum. 
So that sounds much more ethical than, um, have you guys come across this paper? It's from 1954 in Italy. So during the hunt for the white whale in nephrology, which was permeability factor, this guy uh, in Italy took serum from children with nephrotic syndrome and inoculated children without nephrotic syndrome. Yes. Um, Oh my God. With their serum? Yeah. Crazy to me. And to be fair, this this paper's in Italian, so I could be, you know, misconstruing something. But it's uh, uh, this sounds better than that. No, it's it's absolutely true. <laughs> Highly unethical. Highly unethical. But we'll get you to the answer. I was just curious, uh, you know, how it was it easy to purify the nephrin, like this extracellular domain, or was it how, how challenging was it? Now I wish Andy was here. It's not easy because nephrin uh, tends to dimerize because it cross-links with each, with each other, right? You know that. One nephrin from one podocyte and the other nephrin from the other podocyte touch each other and they actually bind to each other. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very sticky protein. And so um, purifying it is hard because you want to avoid it doing this dimerization or polymerization. We had to go through a lot of different steps, and Andy Watts, the first author on the paper, would explain this much better than me, uh, to purify that over, you know, using chromatography and other methodologies to actually get a very pure nephrin fraction that is only one one band on a Kumasi-stained blood. Yeah, like this was so elegant. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of geeking out a little bit on the cell and molecular biology part. So, and then what was the rationale for using the membranous, doing this again for the membranous? Was it just to kind of verify that the method was working or what was No, the rationale, the rationale is, first of all, uh, membranous is also a nephrotic condition. So that served as a control to make sure that antinephrine antibodies aren't just some nonspecific, you know, epiphenomenon on nef- of nephrotic syndrome. So we wanted to have, apart from the normal individuals, we wanted nephrotic individuals with a different cause and a known cause. And because anti-PLA to our Positive patients are relatively common, and at MGH and the Immunopathology Laboratory, they do this testing quite frequently. We had access to a lot of those sera, and that's why we use that. And for the ELISA, we had to validate the ELISA. So we just decided to use that as our sort of negative test cohort to make sure that these patients do not have these antibodies. And since Joel is super excited about the confocal microscopy. Uh, super, what, what, super. <laughs> so that's the right way of putting it. Super. Yeah. Excited. What would be your like one minute summary of what was so cool about these differences or the method used? Well, I mean, so we, what we use in an everyday laboratory in renal pathology is a is a standard epifluorescence microscope. So that means you use you know the same light source. And you just use different filters to see the different colors. So if you do a double staining with two different antibodies that have two different fluorophores, you know, you just use the filters to, to separate them. And uh, there's always substantial overlap. And if you do confocal studies where you want to prove that two proteins are close to each other or next to each other or on top of each other, you want to make sure you use a technique where you have two separate spectra um, of the fluorophores. And so you can do that by using laser confocal microscopy, and the lasers will actually elicit fluorophores at different wavelengths. And you use two fluorophores that are as far apart from each other as possible, so there's no overlap in activity when you 
in the, the spectrum. The, exactly. And so that's what confocal microscopy does. It's a standard technique that we use quite a bit in research mostly, but not really in standard pathology. It's a spatial thing. It allows you to look for two different that's molecules right. in space and kind of local, localize yeah. them. Are you fascinated with the Z stacks? Is that what you were asking so, about, Joel? <laughs> no, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> What we did, apart from regular confocal microscopy, and I should mention that is a technique called super-resolution microscopy. It's structured illumination microscopy, SIM. And SIM, what SIM does is allows you to look at two molecules that usually with a regular confocal microscopy, you would not be able to tell them apart because the diffraction of light has a certain limit. And you can't go over that. You can use better objectives and better everything, and you will never overcome that. So SIM is a technology, and I can't completely explain it all, Um, but it uses different lasers that hit the molecules from different angles. And then there's a computer software that will calculate out the blur. And then you can actually have higher resolution than what you see with a regular confocal microscopy. So we used that technique because it allowed us to really confirm the spatial proximity of the IgG to the nephrine. Give me a sense. You know, we look at EM images in nephrology when we do these. How, how much smaller is nephrine than, than on these EMs, right? Like, how small are we talking? So, I mean, a filtration slit is, is about 40 nanometers wide, right? 30 to 40 nanometers. And the nephrine spans a little bit over half. So it's probably... 30 nanometers long, a nephrine molecule, something like that, I would estimate, I don't know. So regular confocal microscopy ends about as at 250. So that's that's kind of like the maximum. Oh, so you're not even see. close with regular confocal. Yeah. And so you have to kind of go to a higher magnification, a higher resolution in order to distinguish two molecules that are apart from each other or close to each other or on top of each other. And so that's why we use this because it just allowed us a higher spatial resolution. It's not necessary. If you have a really good confocal microscope, you probably can see uh, what we saw and we did see it with confocal microscope, but it's just even better and even prettier. (laughs) You can make this Z stack of pictures. So there's the X axis, the Y axis, and then the Z is kind of like, you know, the depth of the tissue. And you can kind of take pictures at different depths and then kind of reconstruct the entire Z stack, the entire thickness of your tissue section, and you get a better, almost three-dimensional image that allows you to have a better sense of what's really happening in the tissue. It's just a kind of cool technique. I'm not sure we really needed to do that for this paper, but because it's cool and because it produces beautiful images, we added it in. When you use these confocal microscopes and all this microscopy, how are you seeing the antibodies? How, these are because you've already... What do you, how do you do that? What do, they're labeled? You've, you've yeah, tapped. so the IgG is recognized by an anti-human IgG antibody that has a fluorophore bound to it directly. That's gotcha. a directly conjugated okay. antibody. So you're just, you're, you're just looking for you're looking for anti-IgG that, that are the tag. Yeah. You stain the microscope, the, the slide with those, yep. and then that allows you, and then you want them to sh- localize to where the nephrine is going to be right in the middle of the slit diaphragm. Is that right? Yes. Close enough. Yeah, or it's it's not there anymore, and it's somewhere else in the podocyte or on the surface, you know, which is what you see at, as this kind of dusting, staining these little vesicles or little dots. 
that's probably nephrine that's already clustered by the antibody, and there are multiple nef- nephrine molecules clustered together. But there's presumably other antibodies, right? I mean, just like membranous, now we have, you know, a hundred different antibodies. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe. Yeah, you may, maybe, but there aren't that many proteins that are candidates, you know, at the slit diaphragm that have an extracellular component. Because I really think that intracellular proteins, they would never have this kind of rapid and direct effect. You know, you, you really need an antibody that binds directly to a slit diaphragm component and just actively disrupts the connection between two protocytes really quickly. And there aren't a lot of proteins that are in this area. There's nephrine, there's nef123, which are nephrine analogs, and probably an anti-nephrine antibody or an anti-nef1 or 2 or 3 antibody would also destroy nephrine, so it doesn't really matter. And then there are a few other proteins. There's not a lot that could elicit this kind of picture that we're looking at, you know, a disruption of the slit diaphragm, direct functional interference with that. What was the story behind, um, what was it, UCHL1 something? There was some antibody that had been proposed. Yeah, I don't remember all the details. I'm sorry, but I'm familiar with it to some degree. Um, I think one has to be really careful when, when identifying these antibodies because there are a lot of antibodies in patient serum. And a lot of these proteins are also present in podocytes and they might also be present in other cells in, the, in your body, you know? And so I think when we go on these fishing expeditions, and I'm not saying they did a fishing expedition, that, that was a pretty solid study, but, you know, a lot of people do these fishing expeditions and they fish out 20 different antigens, right? And yes, maybe they're, they get lucky and one of them is really the real deal. But uh, we went to this from a very hypothesis-driven you know, standpoint, and we did not go on a fishing expedition. We had a hypothesis what the target should be before we even started. And I think that's a different approach. A lot of studies that have come out and also in the recent months are just studies that, that have gone on fishing expeditions and they found targets, but they haven't been validated. Okay. You want to hit us with some results? Yeah. I'm going to kind of go stepwise, just like this the paper did. And we're going to start out with basically what happened when they looked at the circulating nephron autoantibodies. And this is when they utilized the Neptune longitudinal study cohort, um, and they took biopsy-proven minimal change disease patients. And just to like bring this up, no biopsy material was available in this cohort. So this is really only representative of what's circulating in the serum. Uh, The population, there were 41 children, about 66%, and 21 were adults, so that's 24%. And then the indirect ELISA was utilized to establish a threshold for the anti-nephrine antibody positivity. And that was based on the maximum titer in the healthy control population. So this revealed that 29% of the 62 patients, which was an equal number of adults to children, actually demonstrated a positive autoantibody against the nephrine that was circulating in the serum. And then the control serum revealed that 53 of the 54 patients that were positive for anti-PLA2R antibodies were negative for antinephron as well. 53 out of 54? Yep. So you just said? So one person with, quote, idiopathic membranous was positive for this anti-nephrine antibody. Right, according to our, our threshold. So remember, we set that threshold, right? So we had to set it somewhere, and we wanted to set it higher rather than lower. So we set it at the highest level we detected in the, in the normal control population, right, that we used, the 30 completely normal patients. And one of the PLA2R samples that we tested 
was just above that threshold. And, you know, there's nothing to be gotcha. said that you can't have two different autoantibodies. You know, I mean, we, we can't forget in lupus, patients have, you know, hundreds probably of different autoantibodies that attack different components. So a patient with an anti-PLA2 antibody, there's no reason why they shouldn't also have some of them an antinephrine antibody. And so that might be the case, or it might just be a sample just kind of dangling around the threshold, which be true for some of the negative antinephrine patients as well, that the negative minimal change disease patients that were just below the threshold, maybe they were just on the way down. Maybe they were already, as I said, no longer fully nephrotic, partially treated, didn't have high enough antibody levels anymore to cross that detection limit. So I don't get that with the partially treated because presumably these people are being treated with steroids, right? Mm -hmm. You take a minimal change. Not only. These patients were treated okay. with all sorts of different immunosuppressive gotcha. medication. Remember, those patients that enter these studies, especially the Neptune cohort, I don't think that a lot of regular minimal change disease patients get enrolled in any studies. Those are already patients that have complicated courses, multiple relapses, you know, and they already have MMF or cyclosporin or Celcept or anything like that on board, in addition to steroids, you know, and there's... Unfortunately, as you all know, there's no treatment standard for these diseases. They all, wherever they are treated, there's someone who has this idea, oh, we're going to treat with rituximab, but we're going to treat these guys with Celsep. And so there was no rhyme or reason to any of these, these treatments. And that's why, you know, we have absolutely no control what these patients really received. Yeah, because the thing that's bothering me as I hear you describe this is that if I take a patient with minimal change disease, put them in the same room as a bottle of prednisone, their edema starts to melt away. Right. right? And, <laughs> and, but I'm not giving them B cell depleting therapy. I'm not giving them. So no. what, what's happening to this antibody? Well, that's an interesting question that we, I think, need to look at. I think uh, my personal opinion is that there's probably a direct target of the uh, of the glucocorticoid on the podocyte. Uh, we know that glucocorticoid receptors exist on the podocytes. We know that podocytes upregulate surface nephrine expression in response to the glucocorticoid receptor stimulation. So that might be one thing that, you know, there are patients, I mean, I, I really want to make the point here that this antinephrine antibody, you don't need a lot of it for it to cause very severe disease because it hits the target because IgG is freely filtered. So it's like an in vitro, it's like an in vivo IP situation, right? It, the IgG gets filtered past its target. It doesn't have to find the target. It doesn't have to diffuse somewhere. It doesn't have to accumulate like a membranous causing big, you know, uh, immune complexes in order for something to happen. It, it hits its target, binds, and something happens, and we don't know yet what. We need to figure that out. The nephrine connection breaks apart. The nephrine gets taken up by the podocyte or clustered, and then you have already the slit diaphragm destroyed. So it's a very quick process. So if you Im imagine you, you just slightly change the balance of antibody to antigen, and you depress a little bit the antibody by you know cytotoxic effects of steroids on B cells, and whatnot. I'm not really super sure what happens there, but you know, minor effects can have a really big effect on the antibody antigen balance. And I think that very quickly these patients can recover their nephrine surface expression and then everything can reform. 
I think the idea of the antibody passing through like straight into the slit diaphragm and binding it there. I mean, it, it's it's like affinity chromatography, right? Like you're sending yes. the thing with specific affinity for the nephrine-nephrine junction at the nephrine, and it just gets all the time in the world to bind to it. And it's like continually being replenished as you have more antibody going in, binding, and some other antibody washing off. And so this idea yeah. that like a small change in the amount of circulating antibody, depending on what that... that antibody nephrine affinity looks like i mean that could result in hours you know like it, a small change could lead to a significant improvement in in slit diaphragm integrity within hours you could imagine i mean that that would be really cool to see as a, as a future direction here except for i guess going back to lean into what nine was saying is that yeah that can explain the lack of proteinuria but it doesn't explain why where did the antibody go why is the circulating antibody no longer detected well i mean i'm not saying it takes hours i think it's days until the antibody disappears i mean we followed some patients every patient is different some patients lose the antibody really quickly after a few days it's no longer detectable other patients have a more protected course and a slower decline and you know it seems to take you know weeks or even months to kind of slowly go away. But what's clear is once you've reached full remission, you no longer have detectable antibodies. But so, but I just want to make sure that we're done with this initial experiment is that what we have here is we're able to detect uh, an abnormally high antinephrine antibody in these people in a third of patients, it was a third of patients with minimal change disease. And we can build a theory why it's only a, it's a third, right? Do I have that about right? Yeah. 30%. 30%. And we can build a story where it's because we, we don't have a homogenous population that we're testing. We're, they're all over the place in, the, in their natural history of minimal change disease. And you can imagine that they had high levels at one point in their disease, and we're just catching them when it's low here because we have cross It's just cross-sectional data. Right. Okay. Move along. All right, I'm going to finish the rest of this portion of the experiment to some of the additional data. So between the positive and the negative anti-nephrine nephrine antibody groups, the complete remission rates were similar. It was 4.4 months for the positive and 5.4 months for the negative, but the p-value was 0.72. However, the relapse-free period was shorter for the anti-nephrine group. And the median time for the anti-nephrine positive group was 6 months versus 21. Five seven months for the negative group with a p-value of actually still 0 0.09. So not to statistically significant, but you look at the big range in those two. I think probably it's hard to nail down too much just because the numbers were a little small. I just I just got to know, did you get who who came up with the sentence? Did not reach conventional levels of statistical significance. Was that you or the editors? I'm not sure if I've ever <laughs> read that. <laughs> I think that was Andy. Andy Watts, the that was Andy. Yeah, Andy is extremely compulsive, and he came up with some of these very specific ways to say something that nobody could nail us either way. But um, I should say that this figure we were kind of forced to put in the in the main part of the doc um, of the manuscript. I didn't really want it there because I'm not really sure about this. It's such a small number, as was said, but they kind of wanted it as a as a main figure. I'd like to, I would have buried it more in a supplement. I mean, it, it's fair to want to bury it, right? It's not an inter interventional trial and it's not like your two groups of people are yeah. starting from the same place, right? Like you're getting right. some people maybe at a different point in disease course. It, mm -hmm. it like suffers from the same kind of like lead time bias things that you imagine in all these onc trials that people love to hate on. It's like you're not necessarily taking care of the same thing at the same time. Right. And again, I'm, I wasn't sure that 
I, I really have strong doubts that all the negative patients in this group are truly ne- negative. More negative at that time. Antibodies. That's exactly. So that's why I, I can't really make that conclusion that those are really two separate groups and two mm-hmm. different disease Clearly they want to say that these are separate types. Yeah. And so I didn't like it that they were forcing us to do it that way, but it's a it was a preference. And so we we had to do that. Yeah, I can abandon the last portion of this, but they did say that within the anti-nephron antibody positive population where a serum sample was obtained during complete or partial remission, a significant reduction in nephron autoantibodies was observed. There was a complete reduction in the complete remission group, however, and then there was a reduced reduction in the partial remission group. Is this figure one, panel B? Each one of those pairs of columns are single patients. Is that right? Yes, correct. And you can see active disease We repeated it multiple times and then, you know, to make sure that we're accurate. But I think that um, what's important about this and why we did this is to prove one of Cox's postulates, right? That the antibody is there. So Cox's postulates are, you know, to prove that something is... Causative. Causative, exactly. So, you know, like a microorganism causes a reaction in, in an animal, you have to prove that when the when the organism is there, the animal is sick, and if the organism is gone, the animal is not sick, etc. And then sort of different postulates, and one of them is, you know, to see, is it there in active disease, and then it should be absent uh, when the patient is in remission, and that's exactly what we tried to show. Nice. And then Nan's Italian guy solved one of the postulates by taking the serum from one person and giving it to another person. So you're you're covered. You're good. Koch is way older than IRBs. Well, what's really interesting about this whole project is that if you look at the literature of the past hundred years or more, you know, you find all these little bits and pieces of information that hint to this already, right? You can see that, for example, kids with measles, right? Kids who had nephrotic syndrome and were in the hospital, they a lot of kids got measles back then because it was a very contagious disease. So someone should come up with a vaccine for that. <laughs> they got measles while they were in the hospital for nephrotic syndrome and it cured them, you know? And there are lots of papers about this. This is very cool. And now we know that measles basically causes immune amnesia and kills off B cells. So it's really a fascinating you know, concept. And when you go back and read all these old papers about what they've done with animal models, they've developed random, they basically just inoculated rabbits with glomeruli, you know, to be not quite exact, but essentially what they did. And then they made these monoclonal antibodies, they they made antibodies, and then they took these different antibodies and injected them into mice and looked what they did. And one of them turned out to be an antinephrine antibody and caused this massive proteinuria in, in rats, actually, first. And then later it was done in, in mice as well. But those were the old time experiments. And now we understand a lot of these things. And I read all these papers in the process of putting the story together. And I've, you know, there was nothing that didn't fit. And that made me really believe that this is the right thing because everything makes sense. Okay, let's move on. So next they looked at whether the autoantibodies were present within minimal change disease kidneys. So this was guided by previously observed punctate staining of the IgG in a subset or in minimal change disease patients observed immunofluorescence. And through mechanisms that went over my head when I was reading this, and I thought I would not try to explain it, but they demonstrated that there was a lack, and this is what Astrid referred to earlier, but there was a lack of concurrent 
concurrent albumin staining, which leaves the punctate staining selective to IgG, and therefore it's not reflective of the non-specific protein resorption. So in these minimal change biopsies where the IgG punctate immunofluorescence was observed, the nephron was found to co-localize, meaning where there was punctate IgG, there was nephron. And this was not observed in minimal change disease control biopsies without punctate IgG. Is that correct, Astrid? That's right. Okay. So then this next sentence refers to all of the cool microscopes that we were talking about and spatial co-localization, which also uh, makes more sense to me now than it did then. But there was a clear spatial association with a podocyte slit diaphragm nephron that was not observed with the podocyte foot process um, associated with synaptopodin. And then going further in the biopsies with granular redistribution of the nephron. So this is after it had already been disrupted and the podocytes had essentially lost their architecture and the potos, or the nephron was now sort of glommed up with the IgG when that had been redistributed. There was no co-localization with the three intracellular podocytes that were specific proteins, which was synaptopodin, podocin, and the WT1. Did I explain that one okay? You know, maybe I can, I can just explain why we did this because we wanted to make sure it really is a, nef- is a nephrin-specific co-localization. We did a staining with podocin, which is a nephrin-associated protein, but it's intracellular. So we observed two different patterns. You may get to that of localization of this IgG. One is a what I think a very early pattern, where it's still where the nephrin still near the slit diaphragm and follows the junction of the two podocytes. And somebody described this as kind of a ramen noodle pattern because it does look like ramen noodles. And in these circumstances, obviously, if you stained with podocin, you do see an overlap um, still with podocin because podocin is just so incredibly close um, that you can't even with uh, with this super resolution technique, differentiate between nephrin and podocin and IgG. But then later on, once you have that vesicular staining pattern, it does move away from podocin very clearly, and it's no longer co-localizing with that. And then we use synaptopodin because that's a marker for an intracellular podocyte protein that stains the act an actin binding protein. So it basically be when you look at a a podocyte finger or foot. Really, it should be a finger-like process because they're really fingers and not feet. But the fingers, they have an actin core, and that actin core is cross-linked by synaptopodin. It's a very specific podocyte protein, and that is just a well-known podocyte marker, and that's why we used it. It's a beautiful antibody that works really well. And we could have done a hundred different other podocyte markers, but we decided to just keep it with that because we cannot have a 20 panel figure. I wasn't going to get to that. So thank you for bringing it up. I did omit it when I was reviewing what I was going to write, but you filled it out and said it better than I would have. Okay, so moving on. Well, there's two extra parts. To confirm that patients with a minimal change disease and positive punctate IgG biopsies also have circulating nephrin autoantibodies. Nine biopsies had available serum. And so they looked at those and all nine patients were serologically positive for circulating antinephrin antibodies by ELISA. And then in contrast, 12 controls with minimal change disease that lacked IgG on renal biopsy, there was no circulating antinephrin antibodies observed. The controls included other things too. It was not just, I think there were three minimal change disease patients that were negative for the dusting, but it also included amyloidosis, membranous nephropathy, diabetic kidney disease with 
nephrotic range proteinuria. We, we wanted to include a few other things that also did not show the staining, but had, you know, significant proteinuria. So those cases all showed no circulating antibodies. And then to round it out, looking at the pre-transplant nephrin autoantibodies, there was a single 27-year-old patient with steroid-dependent minimal change disease in the absence of an underlying genetic basis, at least that we're aware of, um, had progression to, to end-stage kidney disease and developed massive proteinuria early post-transplant. And they had really high pre-transplant nephrin autoantibodies observed. And secondarily, during their treatment phase where they received plasmapheresis, as well as rituximab, antinephrine antibodies were identified in the patient's plasmapheresate during the treatment. And then following all of this, the patient did reach sustained remission with this treatment. And at one year post-transplant, there were no circulating nephrine autoantibodies in the serum. Yeah. So maybe I can elaborate a little more about why we included this patient in this paper. And that was me pushing for that. So initially, when we looked at all these cases that had this granular IgG staining. There's one index patient, a woman on her third transplant with recurrence in every single case. And then in her third transplant, she had three consecutive kidney biopsies within, you know, about two months. And all three biopsies showed basically what we see in recurrent FSGS, which is really minimal change disease, right? I mean, it shouldn't be called recurrent FSGS. It should be recurrent minimal change disease because it looks exactly like that. You wouldn't be able to take to tell them apart. And so all three biopsies had this dusting. And every single biopsy that we looked at had worse dusting. So the first one was a little bit, the second one had it worse, and the third one had massive, you know, it looked like almost protein reabsorption granule, but massive dusting. The problem with this patient is we didn't have pre-transplant serum, and we needed, we wanted to have pre-transplant serum before her first initial transplant, because we wanted to make sure it comes from the naive person that hadn't seen a transplant yet, because antinephrine antibodies, aloe antibodies have been described, for example, in kids with congenital nephrotic syndrome of the Finnish type. They get a transplant, they can develop alloantibodies to nephrine because their body has never seen it before, and they get nephrotic syndrome. And so we wanted to exclude that possibility. So we didn't have that from this patient, but we did measure her antinephrine antibodies once we had this all worked out. This was like a little bit preceding the study, this this observation and the biopsy. So we didn't have bi- uh, serum from that time, but we collected her serum when she had her kidney explanted, you know, because it was she had to let go. And we took her serum and she was high positive for antinephrine antibody circulating. But we couldn't use that patient for our paper because of all these other the lack of data we had pre-transplant and also because the, the sample wasn't collected at the time of the recurrence. There were all these other things, and we, we just decided we don't want to publish that patient. So we were kind of waiting for another patient to come along with recurrent FSGS that we could test. And then this, this woman came along, and she had a history of childhood minimal change disease that then progressed through various stages of FSGS to end-stage kidney disease, classic case. And I cannot say that often enough. A lot of these people start out with minimal change disease and then progress. I know there are people that say this isn't true, but I've seen so many cases. It is true. And this woman was one of those cases. And funny enough, Helmut Renke had read her pediatric biopsies, at least the immunofluorescence part, 15 years ago. And in his report, he mentioned the dusting in her biopsies. And then when it came... Because you said he does it in every single one. That's right. And so we knew that she had 
this this feature, and we knew that she probably had antinephrine antibodies before when she had her initial presentation, and then even throughout some of the progression. And then, so she she got transplanted, but she never had a, a post-transplant biopsy done, which was a little bit of a shame. We would have loved to see that, but it was just not done because she responded really well to rituximab and plasmaresis. But we were able to get um, her HLA lab samples that were saved uh, from like a year before the transplant. And in those already, she was high positive. And then they didn't save us the serum sample at the time of recurrence, but they saved us the plasmapheresis. So we used that instead, which should be probably about 60 to 70% of the concentration of this uh, antibody in the plasma at that particular time point in the first plasmapheresis that was extracted from the patient. So that's basically what we used as a kind of surrogate for the plasma. And then, then we got another sample a couple of days later. That was then a plasma sample or a serum sample. And then the patient responded beautifully, actually, which we, as you know, doesn't happen so often. But in this patient, we got lucky and she remained in sustained remission to this day she is. And a year later, because it was so hard to get this paper published, we were able to actually follow her for like a year. And um, a year after that, she was still in sustained remission and she was completely negative for antinephrine antibodies. And so I think this is such a beautiful illustrative case of someone who had this disease, had minimal change disease as a kid, likely had anti-nephrine antibodies, then progressed to FSGS, which is why, again, I think that this is the same disease. Some people develop it, some don't, and then recurred. And the disease recapitulates the exact same stages in the transplant, just much faster because the antibodies hit right away at full capacity. They don't ramp up slowly. They just are hitting that transplant, all the nephrine, and they get massive proteinuria right away. And then, you know, that's why they're probably so hard to treat because they have a massive antibody storm happening to their kidneys and a massive portocyte injury. And I think this is just a, a different dynamic of the same disease. So there's, um from the University of Colorado, which is where I am, there's a group that's been working on that. And they've been talking about this like endothelial glycocalyx degradation, endothelial activation. I think the authors Colin Bauer and Gabrielle Carafuentes, who are the authors there. And they're talking about also suggesting that there's a circulating factor. Of course, they're not talking about an antibody, but seeing evidence of the injury, the endothelial injury that's observed. Do you think that these are one and the same? I don't know. I don't know if there are different factors that play together. It could be that there's another factor that changes the course of the disease or changes the presentation or changes the acuity of the symptoms. I can't tell you that. What I can tell you is that you don't need it because if you just disrupt, so what you need in order to have acute nephrotic syndrome when you look at the pathophysiology is you need one effacement of podocytes because you need to have that increased filtration pressure when they're faced, nothing goes through. And on the other hand, you need them to move apart and have these larger pores. So you're moving from a small pore system with lots of tiny little pores to a large pore system. Kind of like I always tell my students when I explain this, a shower head where you can switch from like the big, you know, stream of water that hits you with a lot of force to like the little tiny raindrops that you can change it to in these rain showers. And that changes the pressure. And so, and when you have that pressure, you can overcome all these other filtration barriers that are 
underneath the podocytes. And so the negative charge of the endothelium no longer works to repel negatively charged albumin. And so then it can go through. When you have enough pressure, it'll be forced through. And that's what happens in nephrotic syndrome. And so you don't really need to change the endothelium in order for something to go through. You just need to take away the slit diaphragm and you need to cause the foot process effacement. And those two processes always go hand in hand. You cannot change one thing in a podocyte and not cause changes in another compartment. If you change the actin cytoskeleton, you change the slit diaphragm signaling, you change the adhesion to the basement membrane because everything is interconnected in these tiny little areas. And so when you have nephrine phosphorylation or clustering or whatever have you, it affects the actin cytoskeleton, you have the foot process effacement, and that's when the nephrotic syndrome can develop. I completely unrelated, not related to this particular study, but just kind of on the whole concept of you know, MCD and FSGS being on the spectrum, are you guys looking at this in the context of APOL1 patients? Because I noticed that you know, APOL1 was not listed as one of the genes where the pathologic variants were. Yeah, so... So the way I see APOL1 is APOL1 is simply put causing a, an increased vulnerability of the podocyte to whatever hits it. That is a cytokine, if this is uh, an antibody, if this is stress, diabetes, <laughs> whatever have you, right? And so these patients just have a higher tendency or a higher likelihood to lose their podocytes when there's a stress situations for them. And so Patients that have two risk alleles for APOL1 and are hit with minimal change disease have probably, yeah, I haven't looked at this, but have probably a higher likelihood to go on to develop FSGS and even collapsing lesions. And I would think that if you have these two risk alleles and you are hit with antinephrine antibodies and you're not treated right away or not even when you're treated, maybe you have a higher likelihood to progress. And that's how I see this, this whole spectrum of the disorder, which I call, they're basically diffuse podocytopathies. That's how I would call them. If it's minimal change disease or FSGS, you're just in a different stage of the same disease. And if you have some vulnerability of your podocyte, if that is an APOL1 risk allele or two of them, or another you know, genetic risk factor and or some other problem that they're already pre-stressed, you're already, you already have severe vascular disease and they're ischemic to begin with, or you have hypertrophy and they're already, you know, stretched out to the, to the max trying to cover everything. And then you hit with the antibodies, those patients are more likely not to be able to recover from that injury in some areas at least. And that's when you lose podocytes and that's when you get sclerosis and, and, and scarring. So that's how I would put that together. I'm not sure that really good studies have been done yet, certainly not with looking at antinephrine antibodies. I think that's something we need to really do. But I've seen patients of African descent that have dusting and minimal change disease and have tip lesions, for example, or have collapsing lesions. We've also seen Caucasian patients that have sustained antibody levels for antinephrine antibodies who don't respond and actually have still detectable antinephrine, you know, months into their steroid therapy, and then they develop collapsing lesions. And that's just a product of or a result of podocyte loss. So I think what happens is that some people just have a vulnerability that other people don't have. And that's what we need to figure out. 
And it might be another circulating factor, really, you know, it might be. So you've, you've developed this way to do these blood levels. This is this something that's now you can conventionally do and is easy for you to do? It looked like, I mean, it looked like it was like delivering a giraffe when I read the methods here. Like the, clearly it was difficult to get to develop these uh, antibodies, but now you can detect these levels pretty easily? We can detect the antibodies. Yeah, we, we have to, we ran out of our own recombinant protein. So we have to either make more or we ordered it from a company to be made. And what we got from them, unfortunately, is not quite as pure as what we made ourselves. So we are optimizing the ELISA now with this new protein we received. But theoretically, yes, this is something we can do. The IPs with the human glomerular extract, we can do anytime. It's not a diagnostic assay at this point. It's not approved for diagnostics. But hopefully it will be soon in some place. Have people knocking on your door saying, hey, help us build an assay or can we build an assay? Is that something that's been going on? And if you can't answer that. Yes, I have been contacted. That's cool too. And we have a patent. So there are lawyers hashing things out and all that. But also I get requests from clinicians, from researchers every day asking us to, to test for them. And we can't really do that. We don't have the capacity to run all these assays for people. And I also don't want to issue any kind of report because it is not a, a diagnostically approved assay. Let's fast forward. Yeah. Let's fast forward and all your hopes and dreams come true. Mm -hmm. And I can check off a box and I can order my anti-nephrine antibody levels. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you see this being used? Uh, what does that look like? So the most immediate implementation or use, I think, would be in pre-transplant workup. Just at, like we do HLA antibodies and other things and test these patients and vaccinate them. People that have a history of, of uh, minimal change disease or primary FSGS should be worked up for antinephrine antibodies before they receive a transplant. That's one thing, because then you can potentially, especially when, they're, when they have living donors, you can pre-treat them and try to get the antibody levels down before the kidney goes in. So that'd be one application I think that would be very important. But that's still a pretty small subset, right? It I mean, is. I, I, I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing it's pretty rare for people. No, to but it's a it's a life changing ESRG. potentially thing because I mean, you know, there are a lot of very devastating patients that that receive three tra transplants and that's it, and then they they are just at the end of their line. So if you can help them have a transplant that survives, I think is a is a really big deal for even few patients. But in everyday in everyday life, sure, you could test people with nephrotic syndrome. And if you see that they have antinephrine antibodies, they don't necessarily need a biopsy. You could just treat them. But then I'm also wondering, is it going to impact at a certain level of antibody if they're not respond, if the antibodies aren't getting better with steroids, do I reach for alternative therapy quicker? Yeah, that's that's what it feels like to me. That Yeah, yeah. That, that might happen, but I think we need to do a lot more prospective studies until we can make these recommendations. And I think the studies will come, but it'll take a few years for us to collect the data. I'm not sure it'll be done by me or by other groups that have much better infrastructure to do these things. But the idea that if this is, if you have a pathologic molecule that you can track the level of, you can start to figure out what, you know, we can do, we can do studies on this. We can use therapeutics on it without requiring serial biopsies. Right. It does feel like it does open up a lot of different options. Absolutely. You know, having good biomarkers in GN would be good. It, it also feels like it's a great place for uh, like a 
tertiary quaternary academic center like, like Astrid is at to team up with more primary care and you know regular presentation level settings right your your Neptune cohort is filled with the like toughest of the toughest nephrotic syndrome to treat and if you had a cohort of people who just like like your average six-year-old kid who shows up with nephrotic syndrome and doesn't even get a biopsy because their primary pediatrician just gives them a boatload of steroids like that kind of a population would be great for validating this as a biomarker and testing because you're, you're just starting with such a, a tough selected pool here to, to start yes. with. I think this week, the testing the pediatric population is really a big goal that I have. And those include or actually are almost entirely steroid sensitive nephrotic syndrome kids that have never had a biopsy. I want to look at those. We haven't really studied those. We have had, I think, eight or nine in the Neptune cohort, which we tested, and there are a few positives there. But I really want to do studies on, on that population. And it turns out there are so many people that are collecting samples from nephrotic syndrome patients for eventual future discovery studies, and they have them in freezers sitting somewhere. And they're now approaching me and say, hey, can we look at antinephrine antibodies in my patient samples that I have, you know, 300 kids with nephrotic syndrome or whatever. The problem is the curation of those patients, right? We, we need to make sure that they are truly treatment naive. That's really my big my biggest concern, that we really test at the right time when they're fully nephrotic and not in a later stage of the disease. And that's why we excluded FSGS in that initial paper, too, because we really wanted to have the purest possible population of patients. So I think of minimal change in young people. I also think about it with old people with Hodgkin's or other lymphomas or other old people associated stuff. Have you made an effort to go look for those kind of pools of patients to go test them too? Or are they (laughs) reasonably represented in this cohort? Or it just seemed like it was a tended to be younger, healthier cohort of minimal change disease folks here. Yeah, I mean, the ne- that's how the Neptune cohort is structured. And that was the first one we looked at. That was the immediate accessible cohort we had. So I'm, I'm hoping we can get access to other cohorts like that. What we already know is that a huge portion or actually all samples that we've tested from patients that develop minimal change disease post-vaccination, and there are quite a few that had the COVID vaccine, right, and then develop minimal change disease. There's a bunch of papers published, and we actually have looked at quite a few of those uh, from institutions in the Northeast. And, and all of the ones that we've tested have antinephrine antibodies and have the IgG dusting in the biopsy. So clearly, an immune dysregulation can trigger in some patients the formation of autoimmunity, if that's antinephrine or any other autoimmune disease that you can imagine. And, and that includes patients with lymphomas, I think. They also have immune dysregulation. Graft-versus-host disease, for example, as well, can present as minimal change disease. So I think this is, this is an autoimmune phenomenon, just like any other autoimmune phenomenon that has certain genetic predispositions. It might have something to do with what kind of HLA alleles you have. You know, we know that there's a predilection for certain HLAs in, in membranous patients, and that is imaginable that it's the same thing for minimal change disease. So we can look at all this now by stratifying the patients for antinephrine positivity and negativity. But again, we need clean cohorts, cannot work with cohorts that have been treated already because then we can't be sure about the antinephrine antibodies. So that's a, that's a challenge here. And we have to remain really clean. Otherwise, as soon as we use samples that have willy-nilly been connected 
at various time points and try to compare them to each other, that's not going to work. So finding these clean cohorts is the is really hard. <laughs> a few times during this discussion, you've mentioned how difficult it was to get this published. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, authors always complain how difficult it is to get their studies published. You know, n- nobody believes in the study more than the author does. But do you think because this was so disruptive of the orthodoxy that, uh, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Was there, was the bar higher than you have found with other papers? I think so. I mean, we, we compared our study a little bit with, or we also kind of modeled it after the PLA to R study that was published in the New England sure. Journal, you know, 11 years ago, whenever that was by Larry Beck. And we actually collaborated with him. He was a huge help trying to navigate this whole uh, autoimmunity and, and ELISA field. And, and so we were shocked at when we submitted it. And I'm going to disclose here, we did submit it to the New England Journal of Medicine, <laughs> We were shocked at the responses we got from the reviewers, absolutely. And a lot of those were some things we could not argue with, which was just like, this can't be. We've never seen this, and that's this why can't this be. can't be. And, and so it was just, it seemed really difficult to argue with them. And then in the end, it was rejected. It also was in the beginnings of COVID when they were focusing on all these COVID studies. So they it, it got a lower priority at some point. But we had eight reviewers review this manuscript there. And I don't know if you want to put that in your podcast, but it was a, it was a tough rejection. To and we'll, it, it came, we'll... we fought for over two years. And then eventually we gave up, or we had to. And then we submitted it to some other journals in the end. It ended up at, at the very good journal. I mean, I love the Journal of American Society of Nephrology. It's an amazing journal. And I, I would have loved to see it uh, hit a wider audience, especially PCPs and people like that. They don't necessarily read Jason, but, you know, I hope it gets enough oh, well, publicity that it might still get there. And, you know, the, the Internet has dem- sort of democratized all these journals anyway, you know, nobody has a journal subscription anymore. You can just Google or whatever you need, PubMed search the term and you will find it. So I'm hoping that it'll still get to everybody, but it's, it was a very, very tough struggle. And, you know, and many times I just wanted to give up. <laughs> we persisted. We're glad you didn't give up. And somebody told me, and I want to share this, just yesterday I talked to somebody who works in the Portosite field and who told me, you know, when you... When you send a paper in and you get six reviewers and every reviewer has a different problem with your paper, that means that you're onto something. And this is called innovation because it means that there isn't a big problem with your paper. It's just that everybody is picking on something that they have their agenda with and they want to see their own agenda in your paper. And that means there's innovation in your paper if it's not just one big problem. And that was what we received often, you know, six different reviewers, six completely different opinions from this is the most amazing thing ever to this can't be true. And there's all these problems. I do think, though, I mean, I I really do think that the review process works. And oftentimes what it does is it forces you to include in your paper things that are explain away the other people you may say, what about this? What about this? What about this? And you had the opportunity to include that in your paper. So there's less people questioning me like, wow, they seem to cover all of their bases. Absolutely. So what I have to say is that it has 
tremendously improved the manuscript. I mean, you won't find much in that manuscript now that you can pick at because we have basically turned every sentence upside down and inside out and rewrote it a, a, a million times. So every word in that paper is carefully curated. <laughs> so I think that's that's definitely something that happened to the, through the review process where we, we realized, okay, here we weren't exact or here we didn't really say what we wanted to say and they misunderstood how can we clarify that? How can we better represent this? How can we show a different image or a different graph to show this? And it also prompted us to go to Neptune because we initially didn't have a Neptune cohort in the paper mm. because we only had our own patients and they forced us to say to get, go to a different cohort to validate our findings. So I think it's a, it's a very important part of the paper now. Okay, I'd like to let's wrap this up. Are there any final thoughts that we haven't touched on? Well said. Well said. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> so, Ashley, we appreciate you joining us. What we're going to do now, we do we call a tubular secretion. We're going to go around and talk about it. something's happened to us in the last week, something we've seen on the internet, something we're watching on television, whatever we want to talk about. I'm going to start. We have completed and sent out acceptance letters to our most recent class of the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship. Uh, we send out 37 uh, acceptances. We are absolutely delighted. It is a strong group. We, are, we have interns from 15 countries, from five Continents, South America, North America, Europe, Africa, Asia, Europe. Five continents. Yeah, five continents. Oh, Australia, six. Six continents. And uh, it's going to be a phenomenal class. And just the quality of the applicants over the seven years we've been doing this have just skyrocketed. It's really, really fun to, been, to see how nephrology fellows and young attendings and even medical students now are getting more and more engaged. So very delighted about that. Very excited about this year's internship class. Okay. Anybody else? So I don't know. You guys can tell me, but I just received an acceptance for a paper from C. Jason, and I don't know if I can mention it on here, but it was on a how I treat, and I'm super excited about it on pseudo hyperaldosteronism, and we created this fantastic figure. I think it's fantastic. I'm biased, but. I want everybody to go check it out. I think it's going to be out in March, and um, I'm thrilled. How many pseudo hypoaldosteronisms have you seen? Pseudo hyper hyperaldosteronisms. Excuse me, pseudo hyperaldosteronisms. Have you seen that you have a way to treat them? Besides, so, I went to the books and looked it up. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's the abiraterone case. It's the one that's gotten oh my God. like so much. You've got you've gotten so much mileage out of that case. It's Don't unbelievable. be jealous. Excellent. Excellent. Josh, you have one? Uh, sure. So I think I'm going to break the nephrology streak of tubular secretions here and just go like total TV filler. I don't know if folks have gotten into Cheer on Netflix, the cheerleading documentary series. It's outstanding. And I know I'm like a big cheerleader type. Like you can tell that by knowing me by this point in my podcasting life. But it's a documentary series, two seasons long on two junior colleges in central Texas. And the competitive cheerleading teams that they put forward and train and compete for like they've won national competition that's two minutes long and that's the thing they build up to the entire year and the two season series is just great the first season you like fall in love with this team and then the second season there are a couple of giant twists you don't see coming about the first season's team and a whole bunch of other drama that's great and underdogs and stuff it's it's just so fun 
I ended up purchasing a cameo from Jerry Harris before his controversy. What's the controversy? That's a spoiler level controversy. Are we allowed to do that here? Oh, I don't know. Okay. 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 <laughs> we won't. We it's, won't. A, it's a criminal controversy. Yeah, he's in prison, right? He's in prison? He's in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Chicago, and he's like one of the most beloved characters in the first season. So to connect the dots between <laughs> season one and season two, you just have to watch it. It's, it's again, you don't have to love cheerleading and pom-poms. You just, it, it's just an incredible story. I'm like sci-fi and thriller and and futuristic all the way, but I saw that and I almost clicked on it, which says something. Almost clicked on it. That's a hell of an endorsement there. <laughs> okay. What do you got for us, Jenny? Has anyone done one on Wordle yet? No, not yet. No. That's new. <laughs> no. But I think we should make one for nephrology called Pedal. <laughs> okay. So what's your Wordle? Oh, well, I was, at first I was a little bit bummed that it was bought out by the New York Times, but relieved that the New York Times is actually going to keep it free. So I was kind of worried that I was going to go behind the page. Is that for sure? I hadn't heard that. They, yeah, they said that it was going to remain free. I thought they said it was going to remain now. now. That's right. It's going to remain free for now. (laughs) Nine, what do you got? Yeah, normally I go the TV route, but I just recently finished reading Cloud Cuckoo Land. And so if anybody's looking for a really good book, uh, it's by Anthony Doerr. It's He's the guy that wrote All the Light We Cannot See, which is also another phenomenal book. I just finished it. It's long. It's about 630 pages or so, but it's uh, really, really well done. Nan, you are able to read with your family and everything else because I can't. Yeah, so, well... For full disclosure, we went to Hawaii a couple weeks ago, and we took my parents with us, and so that's the only reason I had time to read. Excellent. Astrid, you got a tubular secretion for us? Just maybe one fact. I live I live right on the ocean. We have a house. I can look out of my window and see the Atlantic, and my husband is an avid surfer, and my nine-year-old son is going there too, and they are surfing in this weather at freezing no. temperatures, wearing six milliliter suits, and oh they gosh. love it, especially my husband. And so, shout out! I can't tell you where I live because I will get uh, in trouble if I tell you where the surf spot is. Because <laughs> apparently, <laughs> so my husband was filmed once after a big storm. He came out of the water in freezing temperatures and some kind of uh, blizzard reporting team from local news station was in town taking pictures and interviewed him. And he was like, oh, yeah, we're in (laughs) mass and here is the surf spot. And (laughs) since then, he has the nickname Hollywood (laughs) in the surfer community. (laughs) And yeah, so... We live right on top of a major surf spot that I can't reveal.